Welcome to the Watershed Series. Each month, the Arts and Literature Laboratory hosts the Watershed Reading Series, a friendly and bountiful reading featuring local and visiting writers. You can learn more about it at artlitlab.org. Our next poet is Max Garland. He's the author of The Postal Confessions, winner of the Juniper Prize for Poetry, Hunger Wide as Heaven, and The Word We Used for It, which was winner of 2017-18 Brittingham Poetry Prize. Um, he's received an NEA Poetry Fellowship, a Missioner Fiction Fellowship, Inclusion in Best American Short Stories, and fellowships in both poetry and fiction from the Wisconsin Arts Board. He's former Poet Laureate of Wisconsin and current Writer-in-Residence for the City of Eau Claire. He protested loudly when I asked him to name a favorite poet, saying it's like uh, trying to name your favorite ocean wave. But he's a good sport, and so he named two favorite waves, William Stafford and Nazem Hikmet. Uh, one time, while I believe he was still serving as poet laureate for our fair state, he gave a reading in Spring Green. Afterwards, he was supposed to follow someone home and stay at their house for the night, but he followed the wrong car <laughs> for over an hour <laughs> through the lightless Baraboo Hills and finally wound up in a stranger's driveway outside of Fitchburg after midnight. He says, oddly enough, they let me in. <laughs> but if you know Max, you probably won't find it that odd at all. Please join me in welcoming Max Garland. I'm just going to go with the smallest poem I have, the poem about the smallest thing, rather, because there's a little more science in this poem. In fact, all the science I know is in this poem. Um, and in this poem, and it's called Hydrogen, and... It, here's the technique, if any of you are writers, every single thing I know about hydrogen is just in a row in this poem, one after another. Hydrogen. A balloon, a bomb, a drop of water, the skin around the sun burning outward. You are truly next to nothing and yet everywhere, so neighborly, so eager to combine. When oxygen decided to swim, you only ask how far. When tears needed a catalyst, you solemnly stepped forth. In every cell, plant, or animal, it's just not the same without you. It's not the same ocean or body. It's not the rain or snow. And still, such a vulnerable element, just a proton, huddled under the wavering attentions of a lone electron, a body composed mainly of the distance between you, a fragile marriage, which, if it ends, may end badly. <laughs> and your loss breed a loneliness so deep, as tiny as you are, the whole world withdraws in consolation. I was driving along Highway 53 once, north of Eau Claire, and passed this tractor. Uh, it was a big, big tractor. They were... Um, they were cutting corn or corn stalks for silage, and a kid was in the enclosed cab. He had on earphones, and he was headbanging, obviously, to something that he was listening to. I decided that he was listening, because of the time it was, to Green Day, uh, because of the rhythm of his headbanging, and uh, Green Day. The string bean white kid headbangs to Green Day in the cab of the tractor. Corn dust rises and floats over the interstate, a gold horizon. 
He's pretty sure he'll never admit to loving this band since he's pretty sure they're over. But the blur of chords and the repetition, the swagger of the once cool singer before he went blonde and political is like the John Deere itself hammered down. The fuzz of dust over the rented land, the girl his heart races to at school, who'll leave for college, he knows, and learn the names of bands too cool to record, too cutting edge to even form. <laughs> he cranks the volume louder. He's pretty sure he's losing his hearing, but wants to hear the bones vibrate, his skull expand as he swings the chute and lets it blast and chops the world he knows to silage. This for all you professors or ex-professors or would-be professors here. I, I, I love bats. I, I, I know how good they are for everything. I'm very sorry that they're, they're dying out and all of that. And, and yet I'm terrified of them. I, they, they freak me out. I once spent the night in my bathroom in the, um, in the tub because that was the only room I was sure did not have a bat in it. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought, okay, I will learn all about bats and then I will face my fear and I will know it. And it's just, and I guess the, the, the plot of this poem is that education just doesn't help. <laughs> For all you students out there, you know, that, that's the plot. That's what I learned after teaching 20 years at UW-Eau Claire. It doesn't help. Bat in the house. What you hear in sleep is the swim of live leather as the bat sweeps over your face on the pillow. Takes his laps around the room. At each turn unravels a little more than you dreamed until the last thread is fear. And there you are. Consider the naked skin, how much it takes to reach the lamp, eyeglasses, the last shirt thrown down. Consider a bracelet of bat, a livid tattoo. Consider the strangeness of 60 squeaks per second bouncing back from your body. You've gone into this before. You've read how clean they are, how well they hear the shape of a thing, how little harm they mean. You've tried to outfox fear with learning, but the chemical self is newborn each night. The bedtime heart is the world's worst student. Later, when you've managed it, wielded the fishnet and broom, heard the screechings of the tangled creature, counted the bared, tiny, beautiful teeth, and coaxed the bat to freedom, you feel humane, but unconsoled. Every wink of the curtain, every wind has life. Chiroptera is the name of the order, flying hand. And the night seems one thick flock, between the blotted moon and where you lie and close your eyes and try not to know but know your brother flying blind, squinch face, baby tooth, much easier to save than love, will come again in sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
I've had this um, Buddhist um, squirrel in, uh, on my back deck for a while. Um, I've had Lutheran squirrels and Pentecostal squirrels and lap, lapsed uh, Catholic squirrels, but this squirrel, I'm pretty sure, is a Buddhist squirrel, and uh, I've learned a lot from her. Sciurus carolinesis. That's a gray squirrel, and that's the extent of my Latin as well. Sciurus carolinesis. It's hopeless how she loves this life. The gray squirrel digs a small moon's worth of craters in the yard. Some she fills, some leaves open. I've seen her work a walnut still green, round and round, shaving the surfaces down to the meat. It moves in her claws like a planet or a bead, bigger and quicker than worry. By love, I mean she uses the day down to the last morsel of light digs, barks, insults the crow, wheels and lashes her tail like a glorified whip. There's a charge in her, wild volts, a livid motion, leaping from red pine to hackberry, the single forepaw catching first, swinging under, then over, then onto the branch. She's a circus when she takes to the power lines, racing the live wire above the lowly addresses. She's a spiral of serious sleep in the high hollow of the pin oak. By love, I mean filling herself with small right intentions. By life, I mean she looks at you from the railings. A kind of dare is in her, her tail curled like a base clef or mutant fern. You won't catch her. She's scrolling from scent to sound to slightest motion. However the light moves might be ruined or rich enough to rob. The way she ransacks, hoards, loses, lashes, bluffs the crouched cat, the unleashed dog, her death a dozen times a day is what I mean by hopeless, how she loves this life. One morning it was um, on the radio. I heard it was 10 below. So I went online to see what it felt like, because you know, it's, you gotta know what it feels like. So I go online and it said, actual temperature 10 below, feels like 10 below. <laughs> and I thought, well that not only is redundant, but it's not even instructive at all. What the weather needs is to actually tell you what 10 below feels like. I mean, you need to take this one step further. So I'll go out and I'm gonna, Stand on the red pine right next to the window. I'm going to breathe, and I'm going to come back up. I'm going to write a poem called Ten Below. And then the weather report will be complete. It didn't wind up being called Ten Below. Oddly enough, and as anyone here who writes poems know, the best thing is when the poem, you discover something. Like the poem is smarter than you. Yeah. So anyway, it didn't. It wasn't ten below. Here's the poem. Joy. Just to know how it felt, I stood under the red pine. It was ten below, and the sun was not quite up, and the moon not quite down, and the air so cold. You couldn't call it cold anymore, but sort of comical, on the intake, 
And the lungs were like, are you serious? <laughs> the three-pronged tracks in the snow belong to creatures no longer of this earth. Oh, paw prints as well were the only traces of what we once call rabbits when such things bounded from the shrubbery. And the light, which began to climb the rim of horizon, seemed stunned the way ancestors in old photographs seem stunned. You look at them in their suspenders and bonnets, the austerity of their faces, as if they knew even then, in the minutes wait for the shutter to close, they were goners. As if they knew the reason for the picture was time without pity. So, I stood under the red pine, took a few more breaths from deep in the mortal instant of my one and only life, which hurt a little, like joy, by which I mean the edge of joy, where it sharpens itself for the work it has to do. I read two poems for my mother, primarily. Uh, we were talking about mothers. Um, some of us have fairly elderly mothers, but this, called, this is the title of this book, the word we used for it. I don't think I need to just say anything more. The word we used for it. It's trying to snow, my mother said. It's coming up a storm. But it wasn't the weather, nor the day, nor wind. It exerted effort and had will, cold will, ill will, or fine bright will. It's clearing up, she'd say. God wasn't it, exactly, nor was the devil, though it might rain like the Dickens, which meant the devil. And it was hot as hell in mid-July. We were blasted about by it, bore the brunt at times, or were at times passed over, thank the Lord, by the worst of it. <laughs> it's morning, she'd almost sing. <clears throat> it's day. And then, of course, it's getting dark, and dark was it all night except for the burning of dreams, though it was in the dream sometimes, a bit of the burning itself. It was time, but bigger than time. Time was only how you tracked it, briefly pinned it down. It's noon, we might say, or soon or over, but it was never really over. Beyond the river and leaves under the wells, from back in the throat, you could feel the vibration as it moved to the top of the mouth, then flicked by the tongue through the teeth. It rode out into the world, but wasn't the world, nor the voice, nor even remotely the word we used for it. My mother used to say um, two things I remember she said a lot. She said to me, it'll wash off. <laughs> that's, one, that's one thing she said, you know. And then she said, uh, yeah, sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. And uh, that was a, those are her two lessons. And I think sometimes it won't wash off. Um, I think this poem might actually be one of those things 
you know, you have to do and you just don't want to do. I mean, writing it. I mean, actually reading it. <laughs> Rehabilitation. 312A has a broken arm, though sometimes it's her leg. Bed 312B has lost her Kleenex and given name. The loss leaks out into the summer grass, which doesn't know it's green, under the sun, which is slowly turning to iron. Nevertheless, it's day. 312A was named for a movie star her mother loved. Occasionally, 312B is her own mother, and sometimes she's married to a dream in which she's fallen from everywhere and landed in a tree. How will we, how will we ever get down from here? She asks me. I tell her we're not in a tree. I'm a professional liar. I tell her we'll be fine. The sun will continue for as long as it can. Maybe once we were in a tree, but now we're just down the hall from flocks of nurses wearing flowers. We shall not want, need not toil. Sometimes I'm her son and sometimes her boyfriend in heaven. Here's a red button to push and nurses will fly down from their stations. It's fine not to be in a tree anymore. Look, if I raise the blinds, how the grass minds its own business, low and safe, exactly the color we need it to be. This is for everyone who's ever been on a search committee or in front of a search committee. I read, I read this poem in Eau Claire once in front of the person, our, our affirmative action officer. And, and I thought, and she um, wrote to me later, said, could you send me a copy of that? And I thought, oh, this is, uh, I'm going to get in trouble. But she, but she put it on the wall of her office. And went, so this is, if, you never, if, you, if, you, if you're going to be in front of a search committee or going to be on one, absolutely pay attention to everything here. You just do this and it will work just wonderfully well. Search committee. You can sit anywhere or even stand if for some reason you're unable to sit or offended by chairs or faith commands that you lie prone or kneel in the presence of others or perhaps hover gently during our interview. <laughs> anyway, given your credentials and the flame we've noticed tearing across your face, we'd like to know we've made you welcome. Good. Now about those gaps in the resume and the need expressed in the flagrant cut of your jacket. Can you account for your actions between nightfall and bloody dawn? Were you lost in a pit, imprisoned among the leaves? What salaries were you hoarding and how will this contribute to the riches we've imagined for ourselves? <laughs> Did you love your neighbor much? Can you type? After sex, do you feel buoyant or betrayed by your demeanor? <laughs> Would you be more comfortable if we rose and hovered with you now? <laughs> do you function well among the living? Would you like some spring water? Has the boneyard got your number? If you could arrange us in any way so that we might function as, say, the river does, all glittery and bright, and yet nobody's fooled what with the grinding down into the canyons and all, 
We've noticed you're weeping. Would you leave it at that? Are there questions about this position? If you ask us for bread and we offered a stone, if you needed help but our need was greater, would that be a problem? (laughs) We sense hesitancy on your part. Perhaps you've read our minds. Fly away from here, fly away from here. Frankly, we may have already filled this position. (laughs) Our memories aren't perfect. But if we wanted to reach you for any reason, say a trek into the hinterlands, would currency be required or some other form of sacrifice? You'll be hearing from someone soon about something. We'd like to say it's been a pleasure. It's strange up here near the ceiling, isn't it? Look how our neckties and shoelaces dangle. I'll read the last poem in the book, this book, The Best Things in Life are the Most Expensive. You wouldn't want to think that, but it's true. Best things in life are the most expensive. Grass, for instance which shines with the wet light of morning and lines the bottoms of small baskets in valleys costing all the way from the center of the sun, photons pinballing their way to the unfurling corona and then smack into the sheen on the face of the grass. And kissing, which cost approximately a fortune and stirred up chemistry and repercussions, betrayals and strollers and sonnetry, And then all those shopping days until remorse is done. (laughs) And snowfall, which is the bread of heaven, though broken by the time it gets here, but lovely when wind-carved and shattered into spectral bits by low angles of light. And then teaching the pine branches to balance the snow. All expensive. And music, which cost millions of years in birds and wolves and longing to learn. And true love, which costs an arm and a leg and imagination alone. Not to mention all the sexual appliances like cars and shoes and well-appointed lairs. And words that well up and want to be but nerve is missing and must be hunted up and down the corridors of the spine, separated out from the more plentiful cut-rate words that shine a little, but soon wreck or stick or cease to console. So expensive, hardly less than unaffordable are the best things, time and memory and forgetting. Water wearing over rock, it took half the life of the planet to form and wishing you could hear it all more deeply and longer, and also silence. Thank you. That was a reading from the Arts and Literature Laboratory Watershed Series. To learn more about it, visit artlitlab.org.